everybody. I'm Karen Hartglass. You're listening to It's All About Food. Before I bring on my guest today, I want to talk a bit about chocolate. We have received comments and questions regarding cadmium and lead recently in chocolate. Now, back in 2015, Responsible Eating and Living, our nonprofit, did a piece on chocolate called The Chocolate Report, and we covered a wide range of issues related to chocolate, the artificial ingredients that may be added, child slave labor used on cocoa farms, primarily in the Ivory Coast, and high levels of cadmium and or lead in many brands. Since that time, more research has been done regarding cadmium and lead in chocolate. Consumer Reports came out with an article in December of 2022, and they list different brands that were recently tested that have high levels of lead or cadmium. Pasha Chocolate, our favorite brand, was reported to have 253% cadmium based on the California's maximum allowable dose level, M-A-D-L, for cadmium. It's a bit confusing, but this number is saying what percentage of the maximum allowable dose level a product was tested had. And as a result, many people have been concerned about their chocolate, as I was, which is why I reached out to Pasha. I was really impressed because the owner of the company emailed me within a few hours and offered to speak with me by phone. I had interviewed Simon Lester, the founder of Pasha, back in 2015. How many companies do you get a response back right away and from the founder? He explained a lot to me and calmed my concerns about Pasha chocolate. I've invited him to come on the podcast where we can discuss this subject in detail for all of you. One thing he said was the Consumer Reports article didn't take in serving sizes. And when we eat a quality dark chocolate, it is a bit bitter. So we naturally don't eat a lot of it. And as a result, we are not getting the quantities of cadmium as suggested. And there was no mention in the article about seemingly safer chocolate products that are diluted with sugar and dairy, which we know are not healthy to consume. In the meantime, don't worry. Eat organic dark chocolate and tune into It's All About Food when I interview Simon Lester of Pasha Chocolate in a few weeks. Now on to my guest for today. I have with me Rebecca Capelli, and we are going to be talking about her film, Slay. Rebecca is an award-winning French filmmaker and animal rights activist based in Switzerland. She is the producer and director of Slay. Rebecca's work aims to create cultural change and to empower people to become advocates for animals, the planet, and vulnerable communities. She also directed and produced Let Us Be Heroes in 2018, an award-winning short exploring the impact of our food and lifestyle choices on our health, our planet, and our values. Rebecca, you are in Switzerland right now? Yes, I'm based in Switzerland now. Great. Thank you so much for joining me. And let's just jump right into this movie. I watched it. It's amazing. And at the same time, it's very, very dark. Well, thank you for having me, first of all. And, um, you know, 
I did not make a film with intention of making a dark film. It's just that the industry is dark. So Slay is, uh, for the listeners, Slay is a film documentary that is covering the skin trade in fashion with a focus on fur, leather, and wool, and their impact on animals, people, and planet. So it's not my intention to make a dark film, but um, you know we need to really put the light on the practices um, that are ongoing. I've been vegan for almost 35 years. And when I started on this path, there wasn't a lot of information out there. And basically for me, it was very simple. I didn't want to kill animals. I didn't want to hurt animals. And as the decades have progressed, I have learned about so much more it's it's so much bigger even though that simple concept is a foundation for me and i don't know why it's not a foundation for everyone else we really do some terrible things all over the planet yes we do we do and more information has come out fortunately about food and i know that a lot of people know some of the information but they don't want to know and, and that's a difficult challenge. But on top of that, there's our fashion industry. And I was really surprised at how, how bad it really, really is. So I don't want to talk too much about the film because I really want people to see it because the imagery is so profound to see it in front of you, what's really happening. You have a website, Slay.film. And I invite people to go there. And in the FAQ section, there are facts. And you put the timestamp in the film when you say these things, which I think is brilliant. But just reading those facts are not powerful enough. You have to see the images. And that's why this film is so important. Well, thank you. Yes, that was certainly the intention to um, share some information because Ultimately, I believe that we are all contributing to supporting industries and practices that we don't agree with. And the fact is that we are kept in the dark. We are hypnotized by marketing campaigns, you know, advertising. We also don't have time very often to, you know, just sit and think about the consequences of uh, our choices, whether these are our food choices or lifestyle choices fashion, anything, any purchase we make. Um, But I think it's not necessarily, you know, a fashion thing or an animal thing. We do live in a world where we just exploit life. And whether life is embodied as people, whether life is embodied as animals, whether life is embodied as earth and the the planet, um, we have put a price on life and this is really, to me, the root of all evil and all that is wrong um, in our society. As soon as you put a price on life, whether that's a human being or an animal or a piece of land, you know, a, a tree or anything, then the river, then we get into a huge mess. And that's not to say that you can't, you know, make money in this world with by doing it in a compassionate way, or at least in a, an ethical way, but we do live in a world based on exploitation. And Slay only talks about 
the skin trade in fashion. It's not the only problem in fashion and it's certainly not the only problem um, in the world, but I think we need to sit down and have these uncomfortable conversations because when it comes to food, we can argue all day long about you know B12 and someone got deficient. And I mean, it, it still baffles me to this day that people are just in denial of the human anatomy and human instinct. We are definitely not built to consume flesh and animal products. We are also, we don't, we have zero instinct to do that. Um, but when it comes to fashion, I mean, what excuse do we really have that we are killing beings for things? And that's really something we need to challenge. We need to move away from the idea that skins are a fabric. So ultimately, this is why Slay came to life. When it comes to fashion, there is some um, conversation around ethical fashion or sustainable fashion. And very often we talk about garment workers. We talk about the negative impact that the industry has on the planet and the pollution, uh, the overproduction. And these problems are really real, but I feel it, it's really, really shocking that um, when it comes to animals, we're talking about 1.5 billion animal skin for leather every single year. Um, we still, you know, fur is still an industry with 100 million animals that are bred and killed for fur. Most of them, 95% of them on fur factory farms. And, you know, we, we need to really sit with this and challenge what we are doing. It's really, really important that we, uh, that we change our, our mindset. We talk about myths in society. And there have been a lot of myths about food and nutrition. And many of us are trying to kind of put a lot of science and facts to show that, no, we don't need animal protein and we don't need this and that. And plant food is superior. And there are myths in the fashion industry as well, that leather is the only material for a shoe <laughs> and that wool is the warmest. Uh, so many different things. And, and we've linked, you talk about this in the film, of course, but we've linked the myth of luxury and quality with animals. And there's this big, giant, unseen gap that everyone needs to know about. Yeah, so the biggest myth in fashion is really that if, you know, skins come from animals, wool comes from animals, animals are natural, therefore it's sustainable and it's good for the planet. And natural. I just want to underline natural. That's exactly. another myth that you destroyed. Exactly. Yeah, so, I mean, of course, an animal is a natural being, but the first of all, the scale to which we breed animals for our consumption is nothing. Nothing about that is natural. So, you know, one thing that the fur and leather industry and the wool industry has been doing have <clears throat> one thing that the fur industry, the leather industry, and the wool industry as well have been doing is really to communicate on this natural myth. And meanwhile, again, we are talking about 1.5 billion cattle, you know, alive right now on earth. We're talking about a hundred million animals in the fur industry. So that's only the wild animals. We're not, that does not include rabbits. 
So these animals are bred in you know, a cage environment. They spend their whole short lives, which is basically up until six, seven months old, into these small cages, isolated from each other. And of course, deprived from all of their natural instinct and behaviors. And they are killed in atrocious conditions, um, which is in the case of fur, invasive electrocution and gassing to death. And nothing about that whole process is natural, you know? So I think we really need to take a step back and realize that we've been played by these industries. I used to be a big consumer of fashion myself. I used to own fur. I used to own a lot of leather as well. And I never really questioned my choices because I was in a mindset of, I was looking at the product. And once the product is in front of you, it's very hard to make that connection back to that used to be a living, breathing animal. So I was really an animal lover wearing animals. But at the same time, you know, it's not just that, of course, I was ignorant, but at the same time, it's also everything is done to disconnect us from, you know, what really happens behind closed doors uh, at the slaughterhouse, on the fur farms, and even on these big pastures that, you know, we think, wow, the animals are not confined. They have an amazing life, but it's just an illusion of freedom and it's an illusion of well-being there's so much harms that go into all these industries. And yeah, I mean, and I, I just want people to open their eyes to these facts. I don't share this very often, but when I was really young, maybe 10, there was a rabbit fur coat in a store that we went to. And it wasn't a, a luxury store, but they had this coat and it was expensive for my family. We didn't have a lot of money, but I just kept begging and negotiating and trying to get this coat and I finally got it it was like the color of my hair and I I just thought it was the most beautiful thing and then when I finally wore it I I really can't explain it to this day but I would get on the bus to go to school and I would take it off right away I didn't want people to see me in it and there was something in that coat that just seemed so wrong to me I couldn't wear it and um, that's just my story. And I I feel bad because my parents no, had think, spent a lot of money on it, but there was energy in there. And, you know, I mean, that's very sensitive of you and very open of you to realize that. But I feel there's a lot of people that, you know, want to possess the skin or the fur, maybe because they love the the, the touch or the look of an animal, right? And also yeah. because it's been glorified and maybe also because it's expensive or whatever it is, you know, it's the norm. There's there's a norm. Um, one thing that worries me a little bit is that this uh, year I've seen more fur trim than when we were shooting Slay three years ago. So I'm seeing in Europe, I'm seeing an increase of fur trims in London, in Italy, in Switzerland, in France. And, um, and that's really something that we need to remind ourselves that you know, this industry is not dead. It's still a very much alive. But, you know, like, thank you for sharing your story. I mean, for me, I grew up, I we had bunnies at kids. That's the only pets that we were allowed to keep. 
And um, and I love my bunnies, but at the same time, a few years later after they passed and I wore uh, rabbit jackets and I never really questioned it. It's like there was this huge block in my mind that was completely keeping me away from thinking at all. And in the film, we interview Melanie Joy on carnism and all these defense mechanisms that are in place to disconnect us completely from our empathy. And I think it's really interesting because I don't think that people are evil because they are wearing something or consuming something. I think a lot of people are just simply unaware and completely disconnected. That said, I also see that people do have a responsibility to educate themselves, to watch films like Slay. Um, and once you take in, uh, into account a new information, you need to take a decision. So uh, up until now, the interesting thing is that we've surveyed uh, fashion students and before watching Slay, 37% of them declared that where um, using animals for fashion was um, unacceptable, that number after watching Slay is 93%. So I'm very proud of these numbers. We've been working really, really hard to, um, again, to get the film in front of students and to also make this film on a very complex and uncomfortable, painful topic to make it accessible for people to watch. So Slay is not graphic. I think it's quite important to uh, share. Um, it's really, and so this the feedback from students is really um, the testimony of the work that we put into the film. I imagine it's difficult to get this film viewed in schools because many of them are supported by the fashion industry. Are they so not? So that's the interesting and the pleasant surprise. Um, fashion actually have been more supportive than I thought about Slay. So the thing in fashion is that there are a lot of people who are working to improve things and to have a more sustainable fashion, to do better for human beings. And of course, sometimes this is just lip service, but there are also genuine individuals who are really authentically uh, working for good and convinced. So for them, for a lot of these people working in sustainability at big brands, um, it was really an eye opener to think, wow, yes, it's true, it's a blind spot. We have not thought or discussed animals. We have not addressed animals in you know, our supply chain and, and our sustainability efforts. And so the film has been extremely well received by a lot of brands mm. and by a lot of individuals. Now, of course, we're talking about, you know, huge odds and uh, massive industry, et cetera. Things don't change overnight. But overall, um, brands have been really, really receptive of the message. They understand that there's a problem and they understand that they are part of a problem as well. So it's been um, one of the things that we did with the release of Slay is I partnered with Collective Fashion Justice, which is a nonprofit founded by Emma Hackinson, who's in the film and who produced the part on wool. And um, Emma is a brilliant activist and she's someone who's really dedicated to, you know, working towards a more just 
fashion system that is kind to animals, to people, and to the planet. We can't exclude one or the other. It's not a hierarchy. We cannot put one above the other. We need to address these problems together. And very often, actually, industries that harm animals harm people and harm the planet. It goes hand in hand. The ones and the ones on the other side who want to do better for planet and people, then they are also more open to also take, it, take animals into account. So one thing that we've been doing with Collective Fashion Justice is to actually uh, engage with brands, engage with schools um, to um, educate them on the, the issue of animal skins, um, and also, also, of course, the, the negative impact that these industries have. Um, and um, yeah, it's been really, people have been more receptive than not. So of course, there's everything is yet you know, to be done, but it's very encouraging to see that. And I'm very happy to hear that. What surprises me, and I never really even thought about it before, but the food industry is an even bigger industry. We kill many more animals. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm surprised that many of the people I know that become vegetarian and then vegan, it's always a food issue first. And then we think about what we're wearing. That kind of comes second. And yet I, I think it would be easier for people to eliminate the animal skins first, but we don't go in that direction. And it's always like an afterthought. That's true. I think... Um... I think a film like Slay has the potential to get people on that journey and uh, then to look at, you know, the food choices and everything mm -hmm. else. So um, I think it's natural because food is, is the first thing that we, we see, we, we consume it, you know, three times a day, uh, plus snacks, etc. And so, as you rightly say, so, you know, we are talking about billions and trillions of individuals, you know, killed for, for food. So that's really an issue. But I think, you know, there's been films that actually put this topic on the radar. And films like Cowspiracy that was done by Keegan Kuhn, who's a producer on Slay and Kip Andersen. Um, Cowspiracy, What the Hell? These are films that really put these issues on the radar way before even the game changers right mm -hmm. um and so i think that's the power of film like i feel like cowspiracy really started a mainstream debate and conversation about the environmental impact that killing billions of you know um beings of sentient beings of animals uh, have on the planet and on our you know natural resources things like water land use etc forest. So my thing is, today we have a public debate, and there is science, and there are scientists that are urging us to move towards a plant-based diet. Um, but again, like that came on the back of so much effort. You know, Cowspiracy came out on two, in 2014. They're not the first one to address this, mm -hmm. but it was. I feel like it was really the first time it was addressed in a really mainstream way and was widely successful as well um, um, in terms of impact. So I feel like when it comes to fashion, we have really come to a place where we ignore completely the plight of billions of, of, of beings that are exploited and slaughtered. Like these industries are entirely built 
on the exploitation and slaughter, and we don't talk about the animals. And to be fair, when it comes to animals in the animal agriculture, we also don't talk enough about the animals. Very often we talk about the environmental impact and we talk about um, you know, the health benefits. But I think it is really dangerous to only speak about the environmental impact of food choices because number one, it's really doing a disservice to everyone. And it's really, you know, it's really easy for any industry, for any company to build a very complex equation to force the definition of sustainability and to say, my product is sustainable because we did ABC and look at this complex regulation. And it's the same in the, in the skin industry. But I think we need to be really able to talk about the animals even you know, um, in, independently from any environmental impact and any health impact, and of course the the thing with, with with animals is it is such a painful topic that we avoid talking about it, and we think also, oh no, people are going to become defensive. I can't speak about the animals, but I think we have to talk about the animals first. Um, just like human suffering, we need to talk about human suffering. And we need to be able to sit down with this suffering. We need to be able to look at it, to talk about it before we start talking about, you know, what is sustainable, what is not. Violence is not sustainable. I have a background in chemical engineering. I'm not, I worked for 20 years in, in the semiconductor industry and I know there are good chemicals and there are bad chemicals. And it really disturbs me to see what people have done with chemicals. Yes. I was brought up, I, my first job out of college was with DuPont. The slogan was better living with chemistry. And we know what has happened. It's not better living. We've destroyed living with chemistry. Breaks my heart. And you list all the chemicals that are used in the tanneries. And the top one is chromium sulfate. And the images in India of the people that use this chemical on the skins and this blue water. I I don't know how you came upon that and, and if you knew about it before you saw it, but those were very compelling images. Oh, thank you. So Slay is an unscripted documentary. So basically I kind of had a sense of where to go. I started doing a bit of research, but everything that we shot is first time on location and there's no script. So it's not like we go somewhere and we're like, oh, we need to get this like that and let's talk to this guy and he needs to say this. It's, it's not like that. It's really like we show up. Of course, there's a lot of research and, and, and that is done. Um, usually we go somewhere and we hire a local to assist the production to know where to go. And um, we had uh, some contacts before going so that we could go into the pollution hotspots. And um, what is really crazy about the, the, the leather tanning industry is that, so again, we're talking about an industry who's saying, well, you know, leather is so natural, it biodegrades, that's not true. <laughs> There's so many chemicals that are involved in the process because otherwise a skin will rot. And I think we need to remember that before we look at this or as we look at this, you know, beautiful designer handbag, no matter how expensive it is, no matter how much craftsmanship goes into that, when it's leather, it is the skin of an animal. And this skin has to be treated in order to not rot. 
so that's we were just wearing skins like which is crazy to me when we think about you know we, we talk about artificial intelligence sending people to space and technology etc and we're still wearing skins in a very very outdated idea of fashion it's crazy it's like the middle ages and people are fighting tooth and nails to to keep going with this it's absolutely insane to me what is really really important to understand when we filmed in india in one of the major leather producers um, region of, of india um, we do that because the skins are actually processed in countries that have poor environmental laws no labor laws to protect the workers and then these skins end up being sourced by major brands all over the world, including Western brands, and they end up in the supply chain and they can end up in the supply chain and become a made in Italy or made in France handbag. It's just a reality. And these skins, the skins can come from India, China, from Brazil, from New Zealand, like anywhere in the world. And the heavy, most of the leather is processed in the global south. And because you have this no regulation to protect people and the environment, then, you know, these chemicals are used, I mean, widely, it's it's really shocking to see, to see people, you know, with very little protection and paid very, I mean, it, it's not dignity. It's not, it's, it's, there's no dignity in this kind of work. And, you know, yes, I have people telling me, well, you know, if they don't do that, what are they going to do? Um, it's their jobs. And of course, they are jobs. But we need to start looking at giving people, you know, dignified work and living wages, not under, you know, like poor wages, plus taking these huge risks. You have such an issue of the workers have faced so many health issues that um, a lot of them don't make it to 50 years old in Bangladesh, a lot of the tannery workers. Um, you have a lot of issues, um, the skin issues, but everything from irrit simple irritation of the skin or discoloration of the skin, all the way to you know, cancers and, and uh, kidney disorders. And these diseases are also underdiagnosed because this is a population that is very vulnerable. They don't have the means to health, they don't have access to healthcare. So a lot of it goes undiagnosed. And it's not just tannery workers, because the way that the the the, the, the where we were in Kampur, the water, they don't have the capacity to treat all the wastewater coming from the tanneries. The volume is too big. And this wastewater from um tanneries end up in irrigation system and it goes and it also cripples farmers and that's where again you have a, a vicious circle of poverty on top of that where you would have farmers who are losing their livelihood because their soil is polluted first of all but also because they get crippled working the soil and you have so many chemicals that are there and then uh, we we talk to this family where the woman is running the household. She has four kids. None of the kids can be educated because they all rely now on her pay, which is 50 US dollar a month for a whole family. And she was telling us even a rickshaw driver, you know, is able to educate his kids and send them to school and we can't. And so really seeing that upfront, it is, it is a reality. And when we dismiss the harms of leather, for instance, 
we don't just dismiss animal suffering, we erase and we make these people invisible. And I think it's unacceptable. We need to, we need to address this. So the, the India part, I think it was really the first time in my life that I also had an emotional um, connection to, uh, an emotional reaction to the pollution of earth <laughs> and of the river. It's not just, um, it's just really sad in itself. I'm just wondering when I, when I saw that and I heard about the quantities of, of polluted water that are getting into this, the rivers and into the soil, it's just how much, is there a tipping point? Like, is there a point where we can't go back and clean the soil and the water? Because it's just mind boggling, the quantities. It's very hard and it's very difficult. And so, and that's the case with, again, any animal agriculture industry, right? Mm. So mm -hmm. one thing that really shocked me, I don't know if you uh, if you talked about that, but um, if you watched Milked, that is covering the dairy industry in New Zealand, you actually see that the dairy industry, for instance, is polluting the soils to such an extent that today you cannot, even if you get rid of all the dairy cows and you want to reclaim the land and turn it into whatever, oat um, harvesting, farming, you can't because the soils are destroyed by the nitrate-rich urine from the millions and millions of cows. The waterways are, are, are destroyed. The people who grew in an area going, you know, as a kid going and jumping in the lake, it is not possible in a lot of places right now um, on earth. It's not possible because of the dairy industry in New Zealand, um, where we were Kampur same, you know, I was talking to people who said, you know, we were kids, we were jumping in the river without a care in the world. And now the parents have to tell their kids to stay away from the water. So it's, and it's the same in the US, there's so much, you know, pollution that is also coming from factory farms. So including like chicken farming, egg farming, etc. It is, I, I don't know, I feel like we are probably past this tipping point and it would require uh, you know, it's very hard and it would require a lot, a lot of work to, uh, it's going to require a lot of work to, to clean all this. So I'm not saying it's not possible. I do see individuals with brilliant minds. And I think, again, we don't have problems because we don't have solutions. We have problems because we are just living in a very corrupt world. Um, so if we want to, we can clean up, but uh, yes, we are. For me, we are way past the tipping point. I'm always hopeful. And I see in small areas, people that have cleaned up their space in a relatively short amount of time and shorter than they thought it would take. I know that the human body is incredibly resilient. We can take in a lot of, of toxic material and survive it. And then when we're sick and we start to treat ourselves emotionally and spiritually and physically better, we can heal. Yeah. So the earth has that, that magical power, that resiliency, if we can stop doing all the damage that we're doing. So I do have hope. I'm just curious about the people in India and perhaps in Italy that run these places that are doing all this toxic damage, this pollution and treating the people so poorly. Are they proud? of their companies? Did you talk to the people that are in charge? 
we did not talk to people who are in charge in um in india we did talk to some tanneries in um italy and we did not interview them but we talked to them and in general these tanneries that are working with this for these big big names they are very proud of what they are doing yes so um there's a problem of transparency there's a problem of traceability and they prefer to turn a blind eye, to be just to be frank. They know that the skins don't even come from Italy or France. Not that it would make it better, but what I mean is in France or Italy, there are some laws in place and there are some systems in place so that the, the chemical waste is not systematically uh, diverse, you know, in the wrong place. Or if it is, you know, there are heavy fines and, you know, these things can be enforced. Um, so they know that the, 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 the skins come from anywhere, from you know, Pakistan, North Africa, etc. They're just very proud to drop the names of people they work with. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, people in the leather industry are very, some of them are very upset with the film. And because they, they say that it doesn't depict the reality, that there's so much effort that is being made, etc. They talk about things like certification, like leather working group. And ultimately, it's just, um, as we know, for certification, it's just a way to condone and keep doing, you know, keep business as usual. And in the case of, for instance, the leather working group, it does not address anything beyond the tanneries. So a tannery can be certified by the leather working groups. First of all, they have very little audits. Um, and, but, you know, it doesn't address the fact where the skins come from. It doesn't uh, address the, the slaughterhouse part, the, you know, the animals, the production of, 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 of these animals. And um, yeah, it's just a very shallow way of uh, evading responsibility. I asked the question because it's the characteristic that I find in a lot of humans, in a lot of different situations, a lot of different industries, a lot of different cultures. I personally experienced it when um, I was asked to participate in a debate on the impact of animal agriculture on climate change. And it was a woman who owned a small feedlot in Nevada. And she wanted a vegan on the panel. It was really courageous of her. And um, before the debate, we got a tour of the feedlot. And all I saw were these enslaved cows on the dirt and being fed this horrible slop at certain periods during the day. And it was very very sad for me to just be close to it and see it. And she was so proud. She thought that when we got a tour of her facility, our minds would be changed, that we would be more open to what we were doing. She really believed that what she was doing was good. So that's something that I don't understand at all, but we can really convince ourselves. I mean, we see it with war and people who take sides. They convince themselves that what they're doing is right. Because they are in the old paradigm, right? They don't want to get out of this paradigm. It's really, okay, like this is the best way we can do this. But what we are trying to tell them is you don't have to do this. You can do something else. And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying um, it can happen overnight, but some people are doing it. I live in Switzerland and we um, have a farm next door. You know, I live in outside of the city 
in a countryside, so near the forest and agricultural land. And so, yeah, I see, I have a dairy farm next door mm. and it's a small one and you have the bulls that are separated from the mother cows and the mother cows that are separated from the calves and from the babies. And honestly, like even if in this, you know, perfect little Swiss um, operation, I see the bulls a lot um, because I, I walk by, sometimes when I walk my dogs, they are, most of the time, I mean, they just confine there most of their time. Sometimes maybe they go to a pasture. I don't, I never see, I never saw the stall empty. I'm not saying it's not happening, but I never saw the stall empty. It's small. It's still stinky. Like it's really full of feces and, and that's where they are in. And you can tell that the animals, it's degrading and they know and they feel, they know, they know that they're not in the best environment. They, they, they are suffering from that. But I think what I find also the most violent is the calves. Uh, and when I see these baby calves that are sometimes coming to the barrier to say hi, but they are shy and they're scared. And then a few weeks later, they just disappeared. I feel like the, the, the violence, their absence is so violent. Um, I cannot have anyone convince me that this is a good thing, you know? And I think it's just a matter of seeing things as they are. And it's very hard for a lot of people. I lived in the South of France from 1992 to 1996 as a vegan. And it was, it wasn't difficult for me. I would eat vegetables and fruits and there was plenty, plenty of fresh produce everywhere, but nobody knew what a vegan was. And I was always confronted and there was a very strong cultural foundation about what is right and what is wrong. And it was okay to do all of these things with animals for food and for fashion. And we recently, I visited a number of times, but I found tremendous change in the last 10 years or so in Europe and in France, especially. And we were just there in October and it I, I get choked up, but it was wonderful to go back to Aix-en-Provence where I lived and there's this fabulous vegan bakery there and then to visit Nice and there's another vegan bakery there and there's, and I don't have to explain myself anymore. People know what vegan is and there are vegan options. And I, I welcome that change so much because of my own experience. But I just want to say for you as a French woman, I am so grateful for your courage and to see what you have been able to see and share that information with everyone. It is not an easy thing to do, especially from the French culture with food and fashion. It's, it's really, change is hard. So <laughs> I'm bowing to you. Thank you. No, thank you. And um, it's really touching. I feel like there's a lot of people actually who have told me that it's a very uh, brave thing. To be honest, I don't feel this way. I feel like it's an obligation. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, of course, it's not the most um, pleasant thing in terms of, yes, I, I wish that I didn't have to do this job. But as long as they're, they're, this is happening, this is where I have to be. And this is what I have to do. And, you know, I ask myself, because I come from, a, I, I'm someone in the past that, I would say would not take a lot of risks um, or rather I liked my comfort zone 
even though this comfort zone may be looked bigger than some people, but still, I was still operating within my comfort zone. And making Slay has pushed me out of that greatly. It's been, it was very challenging because I, I did have to go places where I, at first, I never felt like, I never thought about going there. I never felt about doing these things. Um, but in order to make the best possible film and to to tell the truth and to tell the story, then I had to be in some places. And I remember being on this uh, fur farms in China and you have, you know, again, seeing uh, the images are hard, but when you're on the ground, you have the smell, you have the sound, you have, you know, the, the an energy of suffering that is really, really, uh, really strong. Mm. And that's something it's that is hard to to translate on, on onto a screen. But, uh, you know, like I, I had to wash my shoes just by walking around on this farm for some hours. I, I, I had to wash my shoes five times five times and there would still be a stench and I asked myself when I was there I felt like you know it was uncomfortable it was emotionally super challenging as well it was complicated and um and you know the, I was also overwhelmed by the fact that okay here I am on this farm with maybe a thousand animals but then you know we know the scale the real scale is you know a hundred million animals right mm -hmm. and 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 that's something we cannot really understand we can't understand these numbers. Mm -mm. So I asked myself when I was there, I asked, well, would I rather not be at a nice spa somewhere, you know, on that <laughs> moment, you know, like just, and because in the past, you know, growing up or whatever, when, whenever I traveled somewhere and it was a bit rough, I would always think, oh, I would rather be at the spa right now. <laughs> and, um, and the answer was no, I was really at the right place at the right time. And there's a, a lot of power into being present and bearing with, witness, even though it is painful. So for me, it's really an obligation. It taught me that I can do a lot more than I thought I, I could. And I think that's true for a lot of people. But um, I do have this ability to go. I can go in the dark and I can come back. And I don't think that's for everyone. Um, but I think that's also why it's important that people watch films, watch investigations, because the investigators that are going into these places, they are exposing themselves to a lot of trauma in order for these images to come out. And I really wish that more people, you know, take the time to watch it. I know it's painful, but we need to watch it. We need to share it. We need to be able to talk about it. Just today I was talking with a friend online and she posted something about dairy that it's a, it's a dairy calf that is trying to escape slaughter and uh, it's not graphic in terms of there's no you know blood or anything but it is a painful video to watch and, and she told me well I always wonder should I share this because then you know it, it traumatizes people and it shocks people and and my answer to this is we need to do that. You know, if this is happening, if we are contributing to this, if we are letting this happen on our watch, the least we can do is to, you know, sit with it, watch these videos, share them, no matter how painful it is. It's not about us. I just shared recently the Super Cow cartoon yes. with Moby's music. It's short and it's a yeah. cartoon. It's a cartoon. But the reaction was profound. First of all, when I post things like that on social media, I don't get any likes. <laughs> People yeah. prefer to see the, the gooey desserts 
rather than but, the truth. Uh, yeah, we're not doing this for the likes. But uh, I did get some comments and and it's just something, even a cartoon, that people get it because we know in, in our deep core what's happening. Okay, so we just have a few minutes left and sure. I want to talk about some positive things. So the first thing I want to ask you about um, before we get to some alternatives to leather and wool and fur is what's considered sustainable wool or humane wool. How do you feel about that? So again, the certificates when it comes to wool, we talk, let's talk about the responsible wool standards. So these standards actually address uh, the practice of mulesing. And mulesing is basically the farmers that are cutting the skin off the bum of a sheep to avoid something called fly strike and they cut the tail at the same time. But this can be done without anesthetic and painkillers um, on lambs. And so mulesing is the only thing that is addressed in, you know, by the responsible wool standards pretty much. But when it comes to the wool industry, so in Slay, we covered the wool industry and the focus on merino wool uh, in Australia. And basically, the reality is that sheep are bred to have their lambs in the winter with a practice called winter lambing. And because sheep have also been selectively bred to have more twins and triplets um, than normal, and sheep normally have as many twins and triplets as humans, so it's not something that is common uh, in the species, then you have um, a lot of... Uh, use so the sheep uh the mother sheep that are dying giving birth um they are giving birth in very cold conditions as well which is not natural and as a result you have 15 million lambs that are dying every single winter in australia just by neglect starvation or because they become orphan so these big properties that you picture you know let's imagine you're driving in australia and on the other side of the fence you have these huge pastures with these sheep that are you know free and running around this is where it's happening. So you cross the fence and you will find dead lambs, you will find dead mothers, you will find orphan lambs. And this is something that, um, that again, that the industry is not, no standards is addressing that. There's also the fact that lambs are castrated and mutilated, um, like the, the tail docked at a few weeks old or a few months old, very quickly without painkillers as well. And uh, the responsible rule standards do not um, address this. It also does not address the fact that the wool industry is actually a slaughter industry. The problem with wool is not that, uh, you know, it's just about shearing and there's a bit of rough handling at the point of shearing. The problem is all these mutilations, all these deaths, all this suffering prior to, and a sheep that can live up to, up to 12 years will be sent to slaughter at five to six years old when the wool quality um, declines. So it's really important that we understand that. So there is no such thing right now as a humane way to exploit a living being. And when it comes to animal agriculture as a whole, we know it's not sustainable and we just need to get on with the program. So yes, there might be a few farmers here and there who have a tiny flock who are, you know, shearing lovingly their animals and maybe they are never slaughtered, which, I mean, I would find hard to believe. Um, but then this is not the norm. We need to understand that this is a tiny, tiny percentage. 
And still, this kind of small operation at a time where we have a climate emergency, we should move away from that. And we should encourage people to transition out of that and giving them some work that, again, is easier. It's not easy to be a sheep farmer. I'm not saying that um, these people have it good either. You know, they are, the, the sheep farmers in Australia are under a huge amount of pressure to produce and produce and produce more. So the only humane or responsible wool would be no wool. First of all, use what we have, but maybe recycled wool, whatever. Like I'm, I think we need to really move away from the fact that we are using beings as commodities and their skins as a fabric. But ultimately in the transition, people should just use whatever volumes and materials are already out there and created so use what we have is number one and then swap by second hand i mean this is so important that we really stop producing so much um and then if we really need to you know um buy something new we need to make sure that this purchase is a good one that it's good for animals for people it was made ethically it is made also with responsible materials, but we also need to understand that our information cannot come from lobby groups, interest groups. We need to be smarter than that. And to, yes, it takes more effort in this world to make the right choice. Um, but it's really important that we, that more and more people become aware and, 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 um, and, and go there. So, you know, there are days where there's a lot to be hopeful for, um, but also the, the scale of things and the overall the mindless consumption is really uh, is really a big challenge to that rebecca what can we wear what can we wear for clothes well, what and what we can have? we have for shoes no i think wearing what we have is number one again i think most people have their closets full we have That's a lot <laughs> and let's swap with friends if really we want to switch things up let's just organize a swap with some friends and exchange with some friends, let's buy secondhand, let's just buy secondhand. I think in the end, I feel like myself at least, I end up wearing always the same things. Mm -hmm. So making sale has also made me like a lot more responsible as a consumer to say, you know what, I, I don't need to buy as much. And if I buy, I take even more time to make sure that, you know, I really want it, that, you know, it's as best as possible. It's not coming from a brand that disregard completely workers or their impact or you know animals and um they are yeah and they are brands they are a lot of brands that are to, uh, trying to do things better but i think number one the number one solution to this is not costing us more money it's using what we have mm, brilliant and what about the new leathers that are coming out from pineapple yes. and mushrooms and plants Yes. So um, the innovation that is happening in the sector is really accelerating. There's some innovation that actually happened while we were filming Slay and since we filmed Slay. So there's a lot going on. Um, so there's also, we need to understand that these innovations are fairly new, fairly young. And so they are not, we cannot ex ex uh, expect from them to be pure and perfect overnight. And I think these alternatives are really judged extremely harshly by people saying, well, you know, oh, vegan leather is plastic. First of all, that's not true. There's a, it's, it's really a, a whole stretch. So there is some uh, PU uh, mix in the mix of these materials, 
to a certain percentage, depending on, on um, the alternatives. But there are also alternatives that are coming out, like Mirum, that is completely plastic-free and that is, um, you know, um, just that does not contain any PU. But we need to understand that these innovations are steps towards that right direction. Like today, you can find partly bio-based fulfur. Yes, it does contain sometimes some recycled synthetics material. And yes, it's an issue. But again, these alternative materials companies, they are actively working and improving things. Whereas I find that the skin industries, they are actively working to preserve the status quo and keep mm. selling more. And, you know, maybe some of them are trying to force again to, to try to prove that they're trying to do better. But it's, you know, these alternatives are life-saving fabrics. And I think that's what it comes down to. Rebecca Capelli, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you face-to-face -face and feel your energy coming out of my screen. I am so glad you were born and you're doing the work that you're doing. Well, thank you so much. If people want to learn more, you know, they can follow uh, Slay.Film on social media. Uh, you mentioned Slay.Film, the website as well. So the film is available for free on Waterbear. It's also available for rent and purchase on iTunes and on Amazon. Um, and I'm just working, you know, to make it, again, more available to um, the widest possible audience. But thank you for having me. You're welcome. And I look forward to everything else that you do in the future. Thank Be you. well. Thank you thank so you. much. You've been listening to another episode of It's All About Food. I'm Karen Hartglass. Thanks so much for joining me today. Have a delicious week. <laughs>